here with Paul Bloom. Paul, thanks for joining me. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. So uh, just a little preamble to um, set up this conversation. I, I have been thinking of late that I've been kind of getting boxed in in my normal podcast format. I mean, I'm ha- often having conversations with people where, you know, they've written a book very likely and, you know, I've taken rather often taken the time to read it and this may be the one conversation I ever have with them. And so it really has to be, you know, focused on their topic and fairly buttoned up and exhaustive and doesn't really allow me in most cases to just kind of wander around and hit topics of interest and be a little more freeform and conversational. And so I was thinking of starting a new track in the podcast where I can be more topical and kind of of the moment and experimental and talk about work in progress and all the rest. And I was thinking about who I could do that with, and you were the first person to come to mind. And so, and I, you know, as you know, I reached out to you, and here you are. So, thank you for uh, agreeing to do this. Well, I, I was I was really thrilled to be invited to do this. I, I I've always felt that our conversations go very well, and I think it's because you and I hit a certain sweet spot where we agree and disagree in in the right measure, making mm-hmm. our conversations sort of productive, but not us constantly saying to one another, "Oh, you're right," you know, "You're exactly right." right. So this should be fun. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I must apologize in advance. I have a, a cold for our inaugural conversation. And um, if you catch it over there at Yale, I think it will be due to an excess of empathy on your part. My biggest weakness. Okay, well, we have to begin on an unhappy note because we are speaking today in the aftermath of Kobe Bryant dying in a helicopter crash along with his 13-year-old daughter and I believe it's seven other people. We're speaking on, on the Monday after, and you know, the outpouring of grief and um, just the kind of the way the world seemed to stop around this event. In my memory, the the only thing I remember like it was Princess Diana dying. I don't know if that's uh, what else compares to that, but um, how do you perceive moments like this? I mean, this one is complicated by several other factors, which we'll go into, but it's pretty uh, breathtaking the way the death of a celebrity like this cuts through death denial in a way that few other events do. It's really affecting. I was in, um, in London on sabbatical when Princess Diana was killed in this car crash, and the outpouring of grief was extraordinary. The streets emptied out while people went to the funeral or watched it on TV. People could talk about nothing else, and, and people were viscerally affected. You'd, you'd, you'd walk past people on the streets who were weeping. And, and it, it's extraordinary. I think when it comes to certain sorts of celebrities, the amount of personal contact people have, it, it's, it's a lot of people were more said that they were more affected by her death than the death of their brother or, or, or their, their mother. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's this powerful feeling that, and, and it's not only that she was beloved, it's that she was some sort of I don't know, fairy tale character for them. And, and I think great athletes often fill a, a similar niche for us. Yeah. And also his 13-year-old daughter, who looked like she was going to be a superstar basketball player in her own right, that was really devastating. In fact, it wasn't clear that she was on the helicopter at first. So his death was announced, and then you saw all these images of him with his daughters circulating and 
then to find out that she was also killed, it was really um, brutal. I mean, there's a familiarity component in the fact that you've seen this person so much, but this is an additional fact that it's just, it pings the, you know, if it can happen to them, it can happen to anyone part of the brain in some way, so that it makes life seem especially precarious. And, you know, again, especially with a child involved and you know, dying in an accident in this way. It's Yeah, you could have a... You- you could have a taxonomy of, of deaths of people you don't know. On the one extreme is older people in their 70s and their 80s, where, you know, it could be sad, it could be really affecting. But in the end, it's not a shock. It doesn't seem particularly unjust. Then you get young people, and this is a case we're dealing with now, and, and that could be far more moving. It seems so arbitrary and, and frightening. Hmm. And then you get children, and children, children are the worst, you know? It is the worst when something like that happens to a kid. You could look at any adult and say good things and bad things about them, and they have their friends and their enemies. But, you know, if there's one thing everybody agrees on, it's that, it's that kids shouldn't die. And, and it, it's, it is, if, if you ever want an argument for the, for the cruelty, if there is a God of God, it'd be the death of children. Yeah, it really is the, the argument for which there is no rebuttal. You know, the, the normal arguments about, free will and any kind of justice for a person's behavior while alive is obviously, it doesn't apply to kids. So really, this has become the perfect storm on social media because, you know, immediately upon the announcement of his death, it might have been before anyone realized his daughter was involved, there was this Washington Post writer, Felicia Sonmez. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that last name, who tweeted a link to a 2016 Daily Beast article written by somebody else detailing the the never-quite-settled-to-everyone's-satisfaction rape allegations against Bryant. And the response to that was absolutely infernal. She's actually just been put on administrative leave from the Post. And um, this is one of those moments where it landed with me I don't know if I'm representative of most people here. I mean, I, I'm I'm not a basketball fan. I, you know, Kobe really hasn't had much of a, a space in my brain, and I was aware of obviously these allegations against him, and and was still not aware of what I think about them. I mean, it's just obvious they precede the Me Too moment. Had they come about now, there's no way he would have not been canceled. But you know, they predate everyone's heightened awareness of these issues, and so. She was, you know, re-promoting the scandal in the immediate, I mean, to say the immediate aftermath of his death, I mean, it was like literally within 10 minutes or something. It seemed an example of enormous bad taste given, you know, what his family is now dealing with. But it is an interesting question, just what is appropriate to acknowledge about a person when is too soon, and what's the right way to play a moment like that? It's just, you know, again, it struck, I think, almost everyone as fairly tactless and masochistic on her part, but I don't know where the line is, and it's just interesting to see what social media has done to us here, because it's tempting to feel like you need to express an opinion at moments like this if you have any public profile, and, you know, she has is certainly reaping the results of having expressed hers. I don't know what the rules are here. <laughs> I don't think she knew either. This conservative 
figure, Roger Scruton. He died recently. And for the most part, a lot of his friends and family and his fans posted, you know, gentle stories about him and, and respect for him and expressed their sadness. But there were many people who said, this guy said awful things and, and maybe was an awful guy and so much, you know, so much the better the world is without him. And I, my own bias is that we should always err in favor of being kind to the dead, at least in the short term. But, you know, there are different views on this. I know Christopher Hitchens, famously your, your, your friend Hitch, argue that, that we should not be kind to the recently dead. If we think they were terrible, we should be up front and say this. Yeah, I'll just remind people that he was on the news savaging Jerry Falwell at that point. And then given that I shared his views of Falwell, I really didn't feel much critical distance from that savaging. But um, I saw the other side of that very equation when Glenn Greenwald wasted no time dancing on Hitch's grave when he died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it struck me as, you know, fairly craven, given that, you know, this is the kind of thing he wouldn't have fared well saying to Hitch's face. I mean, in this case, it just seemed like the grief of Kobe's family needed to be so paramount. You're just imagining a, his wife and her remaining daughters dealing with the death of a, a husband, father, and a daughter as well. I and mean, it's just that moment to press the unresolved Me Too case against Bryant, which was, again, it's not so clear. I mean, you know, the infidelity part is clear, and you can yeah. be as judgmental about that as you want, but it's just not really your place to judge if the marriage survived it, right? I mean, who knows what the understanding is or was between his wife and himself at that point. It's like, Given that it's unsettled, it just, I don't know, it was kind of a self-immolation of a journalist. I'm not sure that was the hill she was uh, right to want to die on. So that's one way of looking at it, which is the accusation was uncertain. And given that, you shouldn't have brought it up. But there may be other things going on. If, in that case, for instance, if it was Mike Tyson, who had actually you know, done time for rape, bringing, you know, saying, well, there's a dead rapist now. I, people might have a different feeling about that. Well, there, that opens the other issue of just the kind of the moral significance of having done one's time. And this is actually something I want to talk to you about, and we, we can get there when we get there, but what are the physics of redemption? I mean, when you have someone do something awful, let's say there's no uncertainty about it, you know, we think it's awful, they admit it was awful. What constitutes an appropriate readmission to our good graces? How does somebody get their reputation back when they've done something terrible? And we, and we have examples of this. I mean, there are murderers who get out of prison who then become you know, paradigmatic stories of yeah. you know, moral rehabilitation. And then uh, on the other end of the continuum, we have people wanting to cancel someone for all time for a few errant tweets that they unleashed as teenagers. How do you think about that, even in the case where the previous moral infraction is quite clear. It's, it's a good question. I, I'll say just two things. One thing is, I think that one force in all of this that, that we should acknowledge is, <clears throat> I think we, we pull apart, particularly famous people, they're either good or evil. They're either Princess Diana or they're Jeffrey Epstein. And, it, you know, and there are forces that pull you to one end or another. The idea of saying, okay, this guy died, and there was goodness, and there was badness, and he had his critics, he had his friends, 
is uncomfortable, particularly over social media. You have to take one side or another. As for redemption, you know, you're right. There are all of these famous cases of these, uh, these neo-Nazis who became, you know, crusaders for, to help minorities. There's people who, murderers who have achieved, in the eyes of others, what you see as redemption. But I'm trying to think of this, and I can't. Can you tell me one famous celebrity figure who was really, uh, use today's word, canceled, and now is in everybody's good graces? I don't know, Pee Wee Herman? Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I don't know that anyone is paying attention to him now, yeah, but I, not... I, yeah, I think he did sort of come back and get redeemed. But you know, Kobe might have been, I mean, Tyson is also an example of this, but I mean, both Kobe and Tyson are examples of people who really more or less made it all the way back for yeah. most people. I mean, I, you know, it's Kobe to an enormous degree. I mean, he just, his yeah. career, most of his triumph was still ahead of him, you know, as an athlete. I could have that slightly wrong. Again, I don't follow basketball, but I mean, he was like 25 or 26 when that scandal broke and, you know, he died at 41. So, I mean, I guess once you're tarnished, you're always going to be tarnished in somebody's eyes. But that was a pretty solid example of yeah. having put it behind him. So, so what did he do right? In case, a practical advice for anybody listening to this or for you and me, if we ever really get into trouble, what's the technique for, for achieving public redemption? Well, it, it sort of depends on what for. I think there's some unhappy data on the efficacy of a, the rather Trumpian tactic of never apologizing, right? I mean, in this, there's some social science data suggesting apologies backfire. Yeah. And in, yeah. And in a political scheme, apologies, they just, I, I've seen apologies by people who have done inappropriate things and their enemies just mock them and say, we wanted more. Yeah. Yeah. So it is interesting to consider what constitutes a, and what should constitute a acceptable apology, I mean, whether it has strategic value in general. I mean, I think in the case of something like accusations of rape are their, their own thing, but I mean, just take the infidelity part of it, the crucially exculpatory thing in, in the case of somebody like Kobe Bryant or you know, like Tiger Woods is whether or not the wife you know, stands by your side, right? I mean, that's yeah. a different outcome or the husband, as the case may be. But yeah, you know, I, again, I didn't follow it so closely, but I mean, he just seemed to have come all the yeah. way back. And again, it was pre-Me Too. It's hard to imagine it would have survived the glare of the present moment. I, I guess Bill Clinton is a sort of parallel case, although yeah, because his infidelities and, and the accusations of, of rape happened when he was when he was president, and a lot of people supported him at the time, he, was never, he never really fell that much from grace. But, but I think the fact he was supported by his family, and I think there's sort of, at least he tried to tell a redemption story, probably reasonably successful. When he, uh, when, when, when he dies, people will be saying wonderful things about him. Yeah, that's another example where Hitch was on the case. I don't know if you ever read his book, yeah. No One Left to Lie to, The Triangulations of William Jefferson Clinton. But um, Hitch went all in on the accusations of rape there. And I must say, it, I mean, it's been a long time since I've looked at that book, but I found it fairly persuasive and it reset my view of Clinton. And whatever's true about the extreme accusations there, that the utter dysfunction of his marriage with Hillary or, whatever, or, or the political liability of 
whatever deal they had cut in their marriage came back in the 2016 election when she's on stage debating an opponent who was eminently cancelable based on his own sexual transgressions and you know the the legion accusations yeah. you know, that he was trailing and and yet to that debate he brought you know Bill Clinton's accusers into the audience and you know Hillary couldn't say a word about any of this because of how she had conducted herself during the time of you know her husband's presidency and when those accusations were surfacing how she just excoriated these women as liars and gold diggers and I mean it just she was so on the wrong side of history there and so you know, apparently dishonest in how she took his side and you know scheming in a Lady Macbeth sort of way. I mean, it's just everything lined up to just completely neutralize her at a moment where she would have had an overwhelming political advantage. Yeah, yeah. It 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 is one of a set of ways in which it would be better to have somebody running against Trump at the time. And and this is also an example of something you and I have talked about before, which is how our moral code now causes us to reevaluate things in the past, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. You know, hmm. if 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 these things about Bill Clinton came out and he was a president and he, it was now, the ramifications would be far, far worse because we see it as, as his behavior as, as, as inexcusable in a way that many people didn't back then. I think that is true on the left. I mean, every place left of center is a spot on the map that is truly hostile to you know, even a, a rumor of a rumor of an accusation of that kind. But what do you make of the fact that Trump really suffers no such penalty. I mean, it seems like there's nothing, uh, no accusation of that sort or any other sort that matters in his world. I, I make of it extreme despair. It, it, it is now, I, I think it, it, it's apparent that there's no such thing as dirt on Trump. There is nothing he could say or do that would cause his fans and a, a large majority of Republican base to give up support for him. I think this is one case in which tribal loyalty dominates individual character. And, and in some way, it, it's, it's entirely rational for people like you and me and, you know, roughly half of the country to, to attack Trump and despise Trump. But by doing so, it sets up a dynamic where anything new reported against Trump, tribal loyalties kick in and you say, you're attacking our guy. And Trump feeds off of that. Mm. So, I mean, look, I, I'm not... I, I don't want to come off like, oh, I would have predicted this all along. Honestly, I had thought that, naively, that American conservatives were actually conservative in manners of propriety and sexuality and conduct, in which case they would find Trump honestly repellent. And this has been a rude awakening for me, how they managed to put up with that guy. Yeah. And not only put up with him, celebrate him. Yeah. It is an endless source of surprise that there's any remaining capacity for surprise on this score. It's just, I mean, just when I think he's crossed a line that is going to force people to defect, it never happens. So, I mean, these, the, the, the apocryphal, the, the, the legendary presumed tapes of him, you know, having bizarre sex acts with Russian prostitutes mm. where he pees on them or has them pee on him or something, these could come out, be on YouTube in the front page of New York Times, I don't know what it would do with his support. I don't know whether, whether it would cause it to, to, to drop at all. This reminds me of, of other tapes that I occasionally mention on this podcast. The alleged uh, apprentice 
The N the N word. Yeah, where he uses yeah. the N word with abandon. And you know, as I've said several times, I know to a moral certainty that those tapes exist. I know people who have it directly from the mouth of Mark Burnett that they exist, and multiple people. The one thing I would point out about that is that you know Mark Burnett is living with the illusion that by not releasing those tapes, he has done nothing. Presumably, in his mind, releasing those tapes would be an extraordinary yeah. act. You know that it would go off like a, a nuclear bomb, and to withhold those tapes is to take no action. But I, I would. I would say that the opposite is the case. He took an enormous action and, you know, act of responsibility to decide for a nation of, you know, 340 million people that no one could know about what this man is like yeah. behind closed doors when he had the evidence of it. And I remain somewhat hopeful, this will never be confirmed or disconfirmed, but I do think that, you know, hearing those tapes would probably make a difference. I mean, it's one thing in the abstract to know, okay, this is the kind of guy who probably uses the N-word without any, you know, irony or, or meta context, you know, just how he talks in private. It's to know that in the abstract, but then to actually hear it done over and over again with all the context. I mean, I, I think it would be kind of like, I don't know if you remember this, the way the oh, Mark yeah. Furman tapes played during the OJ trial. That was the end of the end of the trial when we heard just what this guy's mind was like. What do you think? I mean, do you think it would matter if we had, you know, hours of him speaking with abandon, like a, you know, a member of the Ku Klux Klan? No. If I, if I had to guess, I would say no. I, I would say Trump, over and over again, Trump says things and does things. You know, the, the, whole, uh, the whole Access Hollywood tape. I would have guessed in that simpler time that that would be the death of any politician. But it wasn't. Endless, endless, you know, you, now there must be hours and hours of him saying things that are grotesque and tweeting them, in fact. I actually think if, 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 if he got caught with those tapes, in some way it would be his brand. I, you know, it may, be, it may be more embarrassing for him if he spent, you know, two hours, you know, rhapsodizing about how he likes, you know, Japanese poetry. And just really, and he's really, he's really a cosmopolitan at heart. Then, it's, then people say, what the hell? Right, right, he's, yeah, a globalist. But, yeah. but him saying N-word, he's just, he's a straight-talking guy. I don't know. I mean, there's something, there's just something so toxic about the word that, I mean, it has a, a magical power that, you know, I think no other word does in English. I mean, certainly in America. And I mean, I, I think famously it doesn't have the same kind of power in places like Australia. And you get the occasional Aussie who, who will use the word thinking, well, you know, surely this is fair game to talk about the use of the word in this context. But I don't know. Unfortunately, we will never um, hear those tapes. So let's go back to this, the topic of moral redemption. And I guess we could broaden it to moral responsibility and forgiveness. And there's also this concept of moral luck, yeah. which I have always found fascinating. It, it, I think this phrase originates with um, Bernard Williams, yep. but you know Thomas Nagel also wrote an essay, and I think Nagel's discussion of it is really the the one that I have in my head. But there's this feature of moral transgression and culpability and good and bad outcomes. We have an intuition that for a person to be truly responsible for their actions and to deserve the punishment or the reward that comes to them. It shouldn't be mostly, much less entirely, a matter of luck, 
that their actions occur in the first place, right? I mean, it shouldn't just be this spin of a roulette wheel that gets you put in prison with everyone thinking you deserve it or gets you celebrated as, a, as some kind of moral hero. But when you actually look at how events unfold, there's a component of luck that you just can't ever purge from the system. And so I mean, the example that comes to mind for me is a, a, that of a drunk driver who yeah. winds up killing somebody's kid or otherwise you know, causing tremendous suffering. And then you think of all the people who drive drunk, who have no bad outcome, they just get home safely to their beds and sleep it off. And the difference between those groups seems purely a matter of luck. And, and if that example doesn't really land with people, because you know most people are now, they're scrupulous enough not to drive drunk, and they feel like, well, if you kill someone driving drunk, you deserve it. Well, then think about texting. Yeah, Virtually everyone listening to us now will have, at some point, behaved irresponsibly with their phone in their cars. And some people you know, are more or less still committed to doing that on a daily basis, despite whatever admonishments come their way. And you know, texting while driving is an unambiguously dangerous thing to do, which most people get away with. And yet some people wind up killing people and go to prison for it. So then the question is, if the only difference between you and the person who's now in prison for, let's say, 10 years for killing a child while you know, glancing at their, at their phone and driving, if the only difference is a matter of luck, you know, how do we feel about the punishment? Aren't they on some level already punished enough? I mean, just think of how ruined your life would be if, you know, as you're texting LOL to somebody needlessly in your car, you wind up you know, running over a child, leave the suffering of the family aside. You have certainly already been punished. I don't know. How do you, how do you think about this? And, and actually, your, your last observation is a cool psychological question. So if I'm texting LOL and I'm just driving, versus I'm doing that and I run over a kid, why do I feel so much worse in the second case? I was doing the same thing after all. I didn't intend to kill a kid. Yeah. Of course I would. Any normal person would. You know, if I'm trying to install my air conditioner and it falls on the street below versus, you know, it lands on a baby carriage. It's, 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 yeah. it's a life big. But, but why do our minds work that way? And I, I think it's very hard to imagine a legal system that doesn't include some, or even maybe even a system of everyday moral responsibility, that doesn't include some element of moral luck. Because we can't know another's intentions. And the idea of holding somebody responsible for something that they caused, even if it was just bad luck that they caused it, in some way has a sort of more general enforcement quality. I think we can know another's intentions rather often. I mean, first of all, you know that when you know, some ordinary person is texting and driving, their intention is not to kill the kid. This is like a classic yeah. case of negligence. You can certainly know from their subsequent reaction, right? I mean, just yeah. the pain that's going to be evident in them is, is going to be very unlike the sadistic pleasure of somebody who just gets off killing kids. Yeah. So rather often know someone's intentions, and, and the intentions is the most morally relevant aspect of the case because just imagine the mm -hmm. corner cases of extreme 
divergence between outcome and intention. So you have someone who is intending to kill your child, but they, due to a mishap, you know, they trip. They're trying to push your child into traffic to kill them, but because of some, you know, glitch, they wind up saving them from some other thing that was going to yeah. kill them by accident. They look like heroes, but they're actually, they were aspiring child killers. And then just flip that around, you know, you have someone who's trying to save your child's life and winds up being the proximate cause of them dying, you know, a surgeon, say. Intention is everything in those cases. Not everything, obviously, the consequences of the outcome, but in terms of the moral charge to what's happened and, and, and how you want to treat that person in the future, the reason why intention is, this kind of connects to things I've said about free will, which people find perplexing, but you know, how, how can you have moral responsibility without free will? Well, you have it in the sense that intentions still matter because intentions are the only indication of what this person will do next, I mean, what this person wants right. to do in the future. What will it be like to be in relationship to this person or have them walking freely in your society? You know, if the person gets off on killing kids because that's what gives them pleasure and, they, and they're hoping to do as much of that as possible, that's all you need to know about whether you need to keep them locked up. I think you're right. And, and, and I was giving a wrong, I think, answer to the texting case. I think here's a better answer, which is we want second order intentions. So if I knew I'm in a world, which I am, that if I drive drunk or text and I run over somebody, I'll be in big trouble. It makes me less likely to do these careless activities. No drunk mm. driver wants to kill people, but they do want to get drunk and drive. And yeah. to discourage that, you might tell people, you say, we live in a world that if you do that, we're going to you know, have a random number generator and your odds are one in 10,000 of going to prison for a long time. We can't enforce it, but we can do this. And you aren't entirely blameless in that sort of example because you did engage in an activity where you had some chance of a bad outcome. I don't know, I, I, as I was thinking about this, we were talking about this a bit before, I, I remember Steve Pinker was quoted the Godfather on a sort of similar point. And so this is when, uh, when Don Corleone is talking to other gang members and worried about retaliation. And I wrote down the line and he says, I'm a superstitious man. And if some unlucky accident should befall my son, if my son is struck by a bolt of lightning, I will blame some other people here. And you can imagine, if the room was full of moral philosophers, it, that's ridiculous. Why would you blame us if there's something bad happened that wasn't our fault? And the answer is, well, I'm not going to be able to ascertain what's your fault and what's not your fault. So I'm going to assume anything bad is your fault. And that will, at minimum, cause you to be incredibly cautious. And mm. so you can imagine some way the state saying, you know, we're a superstitious state. If something unlucky happens in your car, we're going to hold you very responsible. And that's going to get a lot of people who had no bad intent in trouble, but it will also lower the amount of people killed in car accidents. But I like your case. Let's get back to the sort of criminal case. Imagine 2K. I'm curious what your intuition is. I get very mad at you, and I decide to kill you with my hands. And in scenario one, I try to strangle you, and I choke you to death. In scenario two, due to your BJJ skills and your youth, you effortlessly knock me to the ground. But my intent was the same. Do you think my criminal punishments to be the same for murder and for attempted murder? I'm, I'm imagining strangling you like in an old 50s movie where I have both my <laughs> yes. hands and there, there's candlelight and you're shaking and, yeah. and 
and the music is the organ music is getting louder, louder and louder. Right. Yeah, just the two hands, you know, tightly <laughs> the, gripping the, the throat. The double-handed yeah. old school yeah. strangulation. That doesn't work too well in BJJ, but so good. So I, I try that. I, I have an organ music set up. I try to strangle, and you, you end up getting me in guard right. and choking me out, and ta- I tap oh, out. Guard, okay. And then, and and then, do I end up in prison for ten years? Do you think? Well, I, the outcome certainly matters. I mean, because it it matters in the case of negligence, where we want to deliver the second order message that you will be responsible even for your bad luck if you recklessly allow the bad luck to, the reservoir of mm-hmm. bad luck to fill. So if you're going to drive drunk and you're unlucky, we're going to punish you hard. What that privileges is the significance of the negative outcome. In this case, yeah, there's got to be a difference between murder and attempted murder. Right. But let's just stack the deck even further. I mean, just imagine somebody who is in a position where they can actually initiate the launch sequence of yep. a, an, an ICBM, right? So someone who you know, tries to launch a nuclear-tipped missile and kill 20 million people, but fails. They haven't even harmed a hair on a person's head or, or even caused any stress to anybody because nobody knew about this. But then it's just found out that this is what they attempted to do. The magnitude of that intent, yeah, I think that person gets put away forever, barring you know some some remedy that is more intrusive into their brain where we actually change them as a person. Yeah. But you know, yeah, that's that's somebody we can't have out among us. Somebody who attempted to kill twenty million people. But I don't think, as a whole, you would approve of a legal system that drew no distinction between attempted X and X. Right. And and right. I think the reason for that there's different reasons. For that. I think the basic reason is. If I'm choking you and then you, you know, you, you, you defend yourself and nothing comes of it, we couldn't really know I would succeed. Maybe I would stop halfway through. Maybe I didn't want to kill you. Maybe I just wanted to incapacitate you or show my anger. For the most part, because intentions are invisible and have to be inferred, hmm. it, it is difficult to, to, to take an attempted act with the same seriousness as an actual act that succeeds. And, and my bet would be, I mean, neither one of us are lawyers, my bet would be in, 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 a, in a criminal, in, in the rules of, of sentencing, attempted acts are given. You, you could attempt anything. You could do tax fraud, mm-hmm. you could attempt a tax fraud. You could do shoplifting and attempted shoplifting. I think the attempts probably get less of a punishment. Yeah, there's, a, there's another asymmetry here which interacts unhelpfully with all these cases. The difference between acts of omission and commission we really score commission as much more morally salient than omission. There are many people we're declining, whose lives we're declining to save just yeah. by virtue of recording this podcast and not getting out there saving lives. If Peter Singer were judging us, he would judge us harshly. As we know, he, he judges us a little bit harshly all the time, and he may be right to, but the difference between on purpose doing something that causes harm and kind of consciously just not making the effort to prevent any one of the infinite number of harms one could try to prevent. Those are different worlds morally. If you sharpen it up enough, I think we get fairly judgmental about a failure to lift a finger to help someone. But There was an extreme case in Las Vegas where this guy, he's with his friend, and his friend lures this kid, this son, an 11-year-old, into a bathroom. 
and rapes and ultimately kills her. And his friend just says, dude, don't do that, and finally just walks away. Mm. And it turns out that uh, the first guy, you know, goes to prison for the rest of his life, but the second guy, by the law they had then, didn't do anything. He wasn't an accomplice in the crime. He just did nothing to stop it. And this well, is a case yeah. where, where, where the law and common sense diverge, because the guy I'm talking about, I, if I knew his name, I would say it, but I don't want to, I don't remember, I don't want to say the wrong name, but he is, he cannot get a job, he cannot find a place to live, because people follow him on the internet mm. to make sure his life, he gets some semblance of the punishment he deserves. And I think that that's right. Yeah. I also wonder, though, if the commission omission distinction connects to your point about intention. So if, if there's a homeless man in front of my apartment and one day I kill him versus he's very hungry and I walk by with food all the time and I don't give him any and he starves to death, one difference between the cases is commission or mission, just act versus doing something versus not. But another difference is in the first case, I must have wanted him dead. In the second mm -hmm. case, I was, you know, indifferent. And indifference is, is, is a moral crime, but not as bad as wanting somebody dead. Right, right. There's this weird case that was just in the news of this young woman, Michelle Carter, who was, people may remember this, she was convicted of goading her teenage boyfriend to kill himself by text and also a phone call. Then she served something like 11 months in jail and is now released. I think she was only sentenced to, I think, 15 months. And that was both an act of commission and omission. I mean, I think the thing yeah. that the commission was she was telling him to kill himself and kind of shaming him, you know, humiliating him for not having the courage to kill himself. And it's hard to understand what was going on there. But then she was actually on the phone with him while he was killing himself. And knowing that, that he was killing himself, she was, the real uh, case against her was that there was a suicide in progress and she did nothing to stop it, right? She didn't, didn't yeah. call for help. And that's such a weird case. I don't know. I mean, here's someone who's now coming out of jail and she's like something like 23 or something. And it's hard to picture what, how society and social media will embrace her with goodwill going forward. How do you think what's, of about a case what's, like what's, this? What's, what's her route for redemption? I, I, I find it uh, a complex. Let's just take the commission side. Forget about the fact mm. she didn't do anything. That she, you know, if I remember the details, her boyfriend tried to kill himself by putting, uh, by, by wiring up his car so he dies of gas inhalation, mm. left the car because he was getting sick. And she tells him over text or over voice, says, no, no, go back in, finish the job. Right. So, so here's the argument. The argument is, that, that I've heard, the argument is certainly if she shoved him back in the car, that would be murder or manslaughter. But she talked to him. And if you assume he's rational, you could kind of say whatever you want to a person within limits in that it's not causation. If you push me off, off a balcony, you've caused me to fall. And if I die, that's your fault. But if you say, Paul, jump. Normally, if I jump, well, that was my choice. You, you maybe gave me a reason. You suggest something. That was my choice. Now, it's not as simple as that. I, I've heard free speech advocates say this is a free speech case. You could say things to people, even terrible, terrible things. The law shouldn't be after you for it. But suppose I'm depressed, or suppose I'm schizophrenic, or suppose I'm 10 years old. I think everybody would agree in those cases, words could be used to kill me in a way that should be morally culpable. Mm. And I don't know where this case lies, but I don't, 
I don't share the confidence of some people who say she's committed. No I haven't crime. followed the conversation around this too closely, so I don't know how many people say that. It's just, it is interesting to consider, though, that in order to impute a crime to her, you do have to believe that the victim is in some ways compromised rationally, or it just it was not, did, yes. did not have the normal level of adult autonomy. Basically, given what happened and you sort of analyze everything that happened before that, you're saying that she should have known that she was in a position to influence him. And so trying to influence him makes it more analogous to pushing off the balcony than it would in the case of somebody where you would think, whatever I say to this person, you know, their actions are on them. You tell someone to jump off a building, you know, you, you never think they're going to do it. But in this case, this is the sort of person, and this is kind of, you know, why this became a project of hers. This was the sort of person who was vulnerable to that kind of counsel. Yeah. yeah. And you could imagine, so it, it, it's a case where, it's a situation where there's all sorts of in-between cases. What if it wasn't her, but, but the man's, uh, the young man's psychiatrist who advised him to, to mm -hmm. kill himself? I think we're more yeah. comfortable saying that's a terrible crime because the man is his relationship of trust. What if it was his parents? But, you know, on the flip side, if I go on Twitter, you know, and I give my opinion about something, and as people often do, not so much to me, but I imagine you had your, your share of this, they say something terrible to me, or they say, why don't you go kill yourself? And then I kill myself. Well, it, it's, it's an awful thing they said, and, and due to moral luck, had a terrible consequence. But plainly, they haven't committed a crime. It was in the end my choice. Yeah, although... It's an interesting case where if you join the mob, if you're one straw on the camel's back and that camel's back winds up breaking, as has happened in various cases of shaming on social media, I mean, there have been yeah. some fairly high-profile suicides as a result of you know, Twitter mobbing. And I think if, if I had joined in to one of those pillorying someone in, in the stocks, you know, and felt righteous about it on Twitter, and that person wound up killing himself or herself, yeah, I, I think I would extract some measure of self-blame around all that. I, I agree with that. I, I, I was thinking in some way of a singular voice right. jumping yeah. out, where, yeah. where no rational person be swayed, but I agree with that. Matt Jordan and I wrote an article on this, and we, we drew upon this wonderful analogy by a philosopher we both like a lot, Derek Parfit. Hmm. And Derek Parfit imagined that, that you could press a button and if you press this button, some guy, maybe he's a bad guy, gets an electric shock. Painful. But in fact, the intensity of your own button is so, so small that he won't even notice it. He can't notice it. But it so happens that, say, 10,000 people have the button. And we all like pressing it. And we torture the guy to death. But each one of us individually has caused no badness. It's just as a community. And maybe each one of us doesn't feel so bad about occasionally pressing the button, just imagining making this guy suffer. It won't make any difference. And that, I think, is Twitter. Yeah. Or that's Facebook. Yeah. Someone, yeah. someone mocks somebody, somebody famous maybe. I retweet it because it's a very funny bit of mockery. My retweeting is not going to make this famous person, you won't even notice it. But, but all of a sudden, you know, they notice that 80,000 people are mocking them. And I am one of them. So yeah. I, I think I think we have, we're in an almost it, it's it's you know a, an earlier analogies with stoning where we all throw stones at somebody and they're really small stones but if enough people do it but 
I think with social media, this is a regular occurrence, and I think it happens more often than we like to think, that mobs of people destroy people's lives. But the morally puzzling part of it is each person figures, I'm not hardly doing anything. Yeah, yeah. The sense of righteousness around meeting out justice. Some things are just funny, and you're not really thinking about the moral correction you're, you're applying. But where Twitter really comes into its own is the sense that this is deserved and, you know, dunking on somebody yeah. is what should be happening. And you almost feel irresponsible not lending your weight to that criticism if it's truly deserved. I mean, this you know, happens in the political sphere all the time. You know, so something, some yet further abomination comes out of Trumpistan and those of us who care say, look at this right now. Yeah. But, you know, if Trump jumps off a balcony as a result. I've, I've, I've tried to enforce a rule with myself that I don't dunk on people. I don't say, say bad things on Twitter in a sort of a mobbing fashion. Mm. I could criticize people, but, I, but, and, but my one exception is Trump. Yeah. I guess I, I feel, I feel, first thing, I don't have any concerns about, about him being too hurt by this. And also, he certainly has enough supporters who love him and care for him that it would take away any blow to my particular really, really sharp retort to one of his tweets would, would affect him. Yeah, it's interesting to consider what the day after his death would look like in terms of the social commentary. There would be no period, I mean, not, yeah. not even the day after, the, the seconds after his death. There would be no grace period in terms of the outpouring of, you know, I'm just conjecturing, but I would imagine Ding Dong, the witch is dead, yeah. would be the certainly half of the story, if not more. I want to come back to this topic of moral responsibility, which, you know, the more I think about it, seems like a mirage to me. I mean, given my, my views about free will, it's, it has that character, but it has it. I don't know if you've ever heard this part of the, the, debate I had with Dan Dennett around free will, but there was a, mm -hmm. an example that came to me in the course of that debate, which I, I still don't know what I think about. And it's around this fact that the more responsible someone becomes, the less responsible they seem to be in the end for their failures. The clean example I have of this is if you imagine the best golfer in the world missing a two-foot putt, right? Uh -huh. So you have someone like Tiger Woods, and he's, you know, he, he should make this putt, you know, 999 times out of 1,000. And, you know, the one time he misses, on one level, he's the most responsible putter on earth. This is the guy for whom the onus is really on him if he fails, right? Whereas if I'm putting, you know, you can expect me to, to miss, you know, putts of any length, you know, rather often because I'm a bad golfer, you can't really hold me all that responsible. But with someone like Tiger Woods, you know, it really is down to him, you know, whether he makes this or not. And yet when he misses it, it is the most out of character, right? So his failure to make the putt seems completely adventitious to him, right? It's like, like this is an accident at the level of the universe. I mean, there's just some noise got into the system this says much less about him as a golfer than anyone else, because he's precisely the sort of person who can be expected to make virtually all of these putts in the future. When you map that onto the moral case, you have, a, you have somebody who is 
the most responsible person you can imagine, but morally speaking, right, for whom there's there's no there's no mitigating factors. They were not abused. They are not mentally mm-hmm. ill. They were not drugged. There was just and they go and kill somebody. But in the case of the most responsible person, you know, whoever it is, you know, Bishop Desmond Tutu, you know, some saintly person who then goes and murders somebody. In some ways, it's you're you're now in a position where the they seem less culpable rather than more culpable. It's not themselves, in a sense. Right. Yeah. But if you have that as the corner condition, I'm not quite sure where the sweet spot is with respect to attributions of moral responsibility that truly seem to fit. In most other cases, you have more of a story of background factors which are mitigating, right? Like this person had terrible parents and they were abused and or they have mm-hmm. you know, an obvious genetic issue, which is part of it, or they're in a society or a culture that has wired them up in certain ways to behave badly. And the moment you give someone every benefit of the best possible life and then they misbehave terribly, it just seems like, you know, something came from outer space and possessed them. Yeah. It's funny because you, you mean that metaphorically, but I imagine we might think if the most virtuous character we know starts acting in bizarrely bad ways, we, you know, in an older time, we might imagine possession. We might think brain tumor now, but we would just say it's some sort of external force. Just imagine how weird this would be. Just imagine whoever, you know, Brad Pitt at the Oscars pulls out a knife and just kills someone on stage. How would we interpret his culpability in that case? I mean, here, here's somebody who, for whom there is no precursor that would make sense of the actions and literally everything to lose. It doesn't fit into his life picture in any rational way. It's like the, the most yeah. irrational act from someone who has every reason never to behave that way. And then yet, if he did that thing, it's very hard to parse it morally because it's like, okay, Let's scan his brain to find out what went wrong here. Right. And one way, one way to, to pursue this, I think is maybe the direction you're thinking of, is it unravels a certain incoherence and idea, very idea of a certain form of free will, where I'd like to imagine you know, free will being the capacity to go beyond what's rational, beyond my genes, beyond my environment, and so on. But if I were to act on that, I wouldn't be seen as free. I'd be seen as crazy. Right. You want your actions to be, you know, the actions we view as normal actions, which we bear more responsibility, naturally extend from one's history and one's inclinations and one's circumstances. We kind of want something where if we were to get it, we'd say that, that's grotesque. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Your, your, your example makes me think of it, it. It's an analogy. It was kind of a cool one. You know, many, some people think they have um, voices in their heads and other people's voices in their heads. It could be schizophrenic, but it could also happen under some circumstances. And one theory of this is, ask the question, how do you distinguish between a voice in your head that's sort of a normal voice you might have in your head, your own voice, and a different voice? And the answer is, if you have a voice in your head that says something expected and rational, you attribute it to yourself. If, If all of a sudden the thought comes to my head, oh, I better remember to make dinner reservations because I, I told my friend we'd get together. That's a good thought to have. It makes sense for me. But if the thought occurred to my head, you know, I hope there's not, I hope Spain isn't on fire. 
and that bears no relation to anything, I'll hear it as another voice. And I think your example extends that to actions. If my own actions are consistent with my history and my beliefs and my desires, they're my own actions. But I'll see them as alien if they don't connect in a reliable sense to my, to my past. Yeah, and that, that's true from a third-person view as well. I mean, if right. somebody does something completely out of character, that's why we have that phrase. It seems completely out of character. So the, the character for whom moral probity is, is most expected, and the person you know, who, who you really think would be the greatest example of, of being responsible for their actions, if they behave badly enough, suddenly it's so out of character that you feel like something else must explain this other than their own agency. That's right. Yeah. I've been interested in the question of perverse actions, which connects to what we're talking about, which is, I do think sometimes the deterministic world we're trapped in chafes at us. And so sometimes we do bizarre things, our inexplicable actions, just so as not to be rational, as not to do what's expected. Now, it I agree like with you. It sounds like and Notes from Underground. It is exactly Notes from Underground. Yeah. And I think we, we see this in certain features of everyday life. But of course, you're fooling yourself if you think you're somehow escaping from a determinist you know, past. It's just a different kind of determinist past. So let me ask you, because I've read your stuff on, on free will. I agree with a lot of it. But you, like everybody else, when you're a civilian or when you're not talking about free will, talks about people being morally responsible versus not morally responsible. Mm. You know, I, I've, I've read what you have to say about Trump. I've read what you have to say about him. And some people you blame. You say you shouldn't have done that. Other, and you're perfectly capable of distinguishing between if I, didn't, if I didn't show up here and it turned out I got into a car accident versus I didn't show up to this conversation because I just said, ah, who gives a shit? You would have very different reactions. And so here's what I'm wondering. Does a determinist draw the, moral, the line of moral responsibility in a different way than someone, say, who just has a totally naive view in pure free will? Yeah, I think I do. Granted, there, there, are, there are different modes, and, and there, there are modes in which I'm not so inclined to focus on the deterministic story, right? So it's like sometimes I'm taken in by the illusion of agency more than others, but there's no point that when I really think about it, I, I believe that that's the, the ground truth. But there is a kind of as-if mode where you, you act like agency is the ground truth simply because that brings about effects in the world that, that you want, right? So mm-hmm. like the, the argument for punishment or criticism or shame, say, is that these things work to modify human behavior in ways that, are, once again, are not, they're not evidence of free will. They're, they're, they're more determinism, but they're important, right? And, you know, when it's like, uh, and another is a kind of unrelated, it may, may seem unrelated, but it's actually kind of the other side of this question. When you think about, you know, what to tell your kids and how to raise them in light of believing that free will is an illusion, it's not good parenting to, you know, drum into your children at the first possible opportunity that free will is an illusion. <laughs> I think there's, there are other lessons. World's worst children. But... Right, right. I think there are other lessons to impart which don't, they're not actually, they don't require that you believe in free will, but you, you just have to believe in the 
various aspects of, of a human mind and, and human personality that you want tuned up and for which relentlessly criticizing free will and pointing out the truth of determinism isn't the best tuning procedure, right? So you treat children and other people like agents because that's a kind of shorthand for delivering the, the inputs to the conversation that will get people to behave and learn and change in ways that, that are, you know, that seem good. You know, if you have a friend who's, who's lazy, and obviously they're, they're suffering the results of their laziness, they have all kinds of things they want, which they're not getting out of life because they're not making the, the requisite effort to get those things. You know, they're spending their, all their time smoking pot and, and watching Netflix. And you admonish them to, like, listen, you say you want X, Y, and Z, and, and yet you're doing none of the things that produce those results. You don't have to believe in free will to believe that that is a conversation worth having. You just have to believe that the conversation could possibly affect the system that they are, and you become yet another input, a deterministic input into their system, and that their side of the universe will be different or stands a chance of being different for your input. And on one's own side, you know, you know just as I pay attention to what it's like to do anything, it doesn't seem to me that my own thoughts and utterances and intentions and efforts are the result of a freedom of will that I enjoy. It's just, these are just more things that are, that are happening, you know, in, yeah. in my corner of the universe, but they have their own effects. So my preferences, you know, again, also just arise, but, you know, I have a preference for saying the thing that actually sounds right or that, that will work and not the thing that is just merely offensive or that sounds crazy. I do my best to say the former and not the latter, but again, it's, it is just this concatenation of phenomenon in the end. No, you, you, you're right. I, I, one of the things I, I liked about your free will book was you have a beautiful discussion of the phenomenology of choice, which I think a lot of people get wrong. It's a lot more subtle than this feeling of being sort of a... a a willing machine separate from everything else. That's not what, that's not what real choice feels like. Mm. You said something about talking to kids. So, I, it, you know, I think that that's right. I think that getting your eight-year-old to be really into determinism may well be a mistake, particularly since determinism is a near neighbor to some bad ideas like, you know, nihilism and, and mm. a dismissiveness towards higher values. Mm. And fatalism. Yeah. yeah. But I know some people who would extend that argument to adults. Yeah. To say that those of us who, who preach the determinist gospel run the risk of getting a lot of turning a lot of people into onto associated doctrines, nihilism, fatalism. Mm. Well, yeah, Dan Dennett is one of those people. I mean, his principal argument, as far as I can tell, he never really acknowledges how this is not an argument, but his the principal plank in his case against speaking the way I speak about this is that he thinks the effects will be bad on society. I mean, it's, it's kind of a political case. Like, this is, this is just not good for people to be thinking about free will in these terms, which is not, it doesn't say anything about whether or not it's true. I'm convinced he's, he's also wrong yeah. about the effects, but it's just that, I mean, that is a, is a concern that, that Dan has. It's really paramount for him. Yeah. Are you convinced that that, that shouldn't be a concern? I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, one of many ways in which I'm not a pure consequentialist is I think that I would choose truth over good consequences for the most part. I can imagine some cases where I'd rather everybody have a false view if having a true view would lead us into true misery. 
But for the most part, I like getting things right above and beyond consequences. But when I put that through my consequentialist translation device, what I get is you're imagining the cases where the, the difference between outcomes is so small in the near term and the imagined benefits of more truth is accruing to better consequences in general. It's a kind of rule of thumb that, you know, truth in general, even if there's an initial price to pay for it, is going to be so useful that if you're going to place a consequentialist bet, you should err on the side of having your beliefs in line with reality as opposed to being swaddled in some comforting delusion. I, I agree it's a general rule that one of the reasons why tr truth is good, because it's truth connects to other virtues. It's, it's good to have, you know, true beliefs about airplanes because they fly better, true beliefs about, about science because you better understand and better able to improve our lives and so on. But I can imagine cases, it's not hard to imagine cases where they, they dissociate. I'll give you one you've probably heard before. Suppose, it's not crazy, suppose people are actually much reassured and much happier by a belief in heaven. Suppose, and we could argue, but just suppose that this belief in heaven has no other bad effects. It doesn't cause people to, to kill in holy wars and stuff. It just, it just makes people happy. Suppose, as I think we both believe, it's wrong. So you have somebody who runs around saying there's no heaven. I guess, I, see, I'm not, mm. again, I'm in favor of truth. I'm happy to be the guy who runs around saying there's no heaven and having people be slightly unhappy, had the bad luck to listen to me say this, but I do think that there's a conflict. I do think that there are cases where the truth will make people unhappy. And there's no, I think, magical law of the universe that says eventually it has to lead to positive results. Well, I think there, there's almost a magical law in the sense, it kind of followed David Deutsch here in, in the primacy he puts on the error-correcting mechanism of fighting our way to the best explanation. And it's not so important what you think in any given moment, but how you think. And that process of reality testing and criticism, you know, and self-criticism, that safeguards our alignment with reality. However loose that alignment may be in the end, it safeguards a process allowing, you know, people with different backgrounds and interests and incentives to ultimately converge on you know, real facts and to build life-saving technology and cure disease and all the rest. And also, I think, come to a, a moral convergence on important points. And where, the, where that process gets short-circuited, you know, as it does in, in virtually every religious context, that is responsible for the, the pathologies we see there and, and the failures to converge and the, and, the, and the balkanization of our epistemology and our you know, and the fragmentation of our world politically and, and morally. And I mean, if you, if you gave me a truly clean case where a false belief was not short-circuiting our, you know, this larger project of error correction, you know, which basically everything intellectually good is anchored to, and Deutsch would argue, and I, I think I would agree, basically everything that's morally good is also anchored there. If you just give me the clean case of, let's say, a certain fact which we could misunderstand, and in misunderstanding it, that would be to everyone's benefit and the benefit of future generations. You know, this was just a falsity that made lots of people happy. I could dine a la carte from that menu all day long. I, I would keep 
accepting falsities until they they had some other consequence that was negative. So if it just so happened that believing something false about George Washington would pay all of these happy dividends yeah. down through the generations and onward without any other cost, well, yeah, then I would, I would just import that fiction into the clockwork. How could you be sure that wouldn't be the case? A, a, a historical fact is actually particularly interesting because you could imagine being false about the chemical composition of something, even about heaven, where it will mess up future research programs, it will lead in the, get in the way of finding future truth. Yeah, but what about getting a... Like, you what give about, us an endless supply yeah. of suicide bombers. There are some downsides. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, I'm for the sake of argument putting that aside. Right. I think I'm not, I'm not a fundamentalist with respect to the primacy of truth because there are certain things, I mean, this is just the flip side of the other case, which is I can imagine there are certain truths that if known could produce great harm, right? And this goes to the, the notion of existential risk, right? I mean, there are certain things right. we might come to understand about you know, the physics of things, which once we understand them, and can't ununderstand them, we'll wind up destroying ourselves. You know, I'll be the first to want to bar the door yeah. to those research projects because this is knowledge is not a suicide pact. And it's totally possible that we live in a world where, do you know Nick Bostrom's I do. argument I do. here? And, I, yeah. and, and, I've, and I've heard you talk about this before. Yeah. So yeah. this is one case where, where you accept it, where you might rather us have false beliefs about the right way to create improved AI than true beliefs. Yeah, so I mean, this is just so I'm taking both sides of this. So there, if there are certain kinds of true beliefs that will prove fatal to us, well, then I don't want us to have those beliefs. And if there are certain kinds of false beliefs that only have enormously good consequences, or if on balance we have every reason to believe that the consequences are you know, much better than they are bad in the general case, and don't do anything to screw up our, our knowledge-gathering mechanisms going forward, well, then, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to, to have yeah. those, I think. The general principle here is that I think there's something more important than having true beliefs or acquiring knowledge. Yeah. I think, you know, well-being, you know, again, this is an elastic term that I keep coming back to, but, you know, the well-being of conscious creatures is more important than them being in touch with all the facts that one, one could be in touch with. Let me, let's continue on the same thing, but you once wrote a beautiful little book called Lying, where you basically said, we should stop lying. Lying is socially convenient. It makes life easier. You're not talking about malevolent lies for the most part. From what, I read the book a while ago, but you were talking about social lies. Yeah, white lies, yeah. Do I look good in distress? Your kid holds up an artwork, says, what do you think? Did you know, do you think I need to lose weight? Have you read my last book? What do you think? Those kind of things. And you argue that there's a f push for, for telling the truth. And your argument was a sort of long-term consequentialist one, where if I know you'll tell me the truth, that leads to a much better relationship with you. I could trust you in a way which if you lie to get sort of small victories and small happiness, I won't have that. And I find a lot of that convincing. But, but, let me, but just to give you one case, you could imagine, and you're, as a consequentialist, you would accept some lies, some cases where you don't have the truth, can be good. Imagine deathbed cases. Mm -hmm. You're on your deathbed. You're with your friend who you respect so much. You ask your friend, what do you think of my life work? Your friend thinking, eh, not much. 
But to make you happy, your friend says, it is wonderful, it will last forever, and you die a happy man. Certainly that kind of lie would be good. I would hesitate to say certainly. I mean, I can imagine cases where it's... You could suddenly recover. (laughs) Well, it's just you're considering the case where your last exchange with someone who is important to you is to have told them a lie. Mm -hmm. The question is, was there a truth you could tell in that circumstance that would have had a, you know, if not the same effect of sparing their feelings on that point, would have communicated your love and support just as clearly, right? There may not always be one, or you, you may be yeah. not practiced enough in telling the, the artful truth, you know, under pressure such that you, you, you can bring it off. And so, obviously, the temptation to lie is fairly pressing there. But generally speaking, the challenge is to find a way of speaking the truth that still, even when it's at odds with what people think they want in that moment, you're still managing to communicate what is in fact true, which is you're on their side, right? And you actually wish them well. Now, now when that's not true, I mean, that's not always true necessarily. I mean, sometimes you're a jerk or you're in a situation where you don't feel like you're on the same team with somebody else. And then a commitment to telling the truth in circumstances like that really holds up a mirror to your own mind. Then you're, you begin to see just how two-faced you are or how, how ulterior you are. And then you, know, you, you become more and more sensitive to the, the psychological cost of keeping two sets of books ethically, where you have, you know, one set of books for the people who are your friends and another set for the strangers who you, who you yeah. have a, a zero-sum relationship with. And, and then, then I think living an examined life becomes more about ultimately keeping one set of books. But it's basically what you're conjuring there on the deathbed is a, a somewhat paternalistic situation analogous to, to being with a child, right? What's happened in that last moment is Someone, based on their own psychological needs in extremis, it's on them in a sense. It's on them and also the situation where the, you know, the conversation, you know, they don't have life yet to live that can allow for further conversation. So, Yeah, it, it's, it's the last feature I'm zooming in on. I could imagine this case, the person on a deathbed is, you know, fully lucid, has their, their capacities intact. In fact, it's, if, if it were you, so lucid that you would frame the question to your friend, in such, way that, in such a way that there's no ducking it. You'd ask it as a yes-no question so that you really will get at the truth. The feature of the example is you have no future. There's no future ahead of you. And the arguments for truth you give yeah. are, future, are future-oriented. Now, there's a way to wiggle away from this, which you might have, which, which I thought of, and it might have some weight to it, which is the damage of the lie would be to the, to the person telling the lie. That, that in some way that, that damages the person to some extent. And maybe that damage may be so deep, having lied to their friend on his deathbed, a friend who privileges truth above, above all things, that it might harm the person so much that it wouldn't be worth it. If I was really going full philosopher, I'd have you both on your deathbed. <laughs> so asking someone, asking about somebody's life's work is sort of less, is squishier for me than some other cases I could think of, because I kind of, easily imagine saying something that is not false, that is, you know, still supportive and kind of mollifies them in that moment. But 
just this this is a more binary case. Imagine someone on their deathbed asking you whether their wife had been faithful to them or their husband had mm-hmm. been faithful and leaving aside how you got yourself into the position to have this knowledge and to never have communicated it before then or I don't know how long you have been complicit in keeping this knowledge from this person whose well-being we're asked to believe is so important to you but you find yourself in a position of being able to disconfirm this assumption about the fidelity of a wife or a husband on a person's deathbed and they ask you and so the question is what's like what is the the benefit of telling the truth to somebody who just has a short time left to live that's a hard case for me again it, it is a the analogy is to being with a child for me it's like yeah death has somehow infantilized the person because the circumstance is such that you really really what you feel is maintaining their their happiness in the moment is the paramount concern because it's the only moment they've got right and there's, right. there's no future moments to take into account. It does remind me of a scene I saw in 1917 a couple of nights ago. Oh, I, I haven't seen that yet. Is that, you recommend it? I don't think it's best picture quality, but it's a very powerful, beautifully done film. Hmm. But there's a scene, I, I won't give anything away, but where a man has been shot and he's with his best friend and his situation is not good. And he asks his friend, am I going to die? And the friend thinks about the answer for like five seconds and says, yes. Yes, I think you are. <laughs> and, 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 and in some way, at the point, you think, that's actually the right answer. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, guy, the guy then said something else which, which needed to be said, and, and, yeah. and it was the right answer. And, and, and it just struck me as a kind of courageous answer as well. Yeah. That's the other thing about the white lie. It's often hard to imagine in advance all of the, the doors you're keeping closed by avoiding the truth. I mean, you just don't, you don't know what's on the other side of the honest disclosure. And I mean, and, and you often think you know, like in that case, it's, it's like, you know, this is just why give this person a jolt of fear in their last moments when they could just surrender to the morphine or to, you know, the opioid storm in their own heads. But you weren't thinking, oh, and then they actually had something you want, they wanted you to tell their wife, right? You know, yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been reading, uh, finished reading Tyler Cowen's book, Stubborn Attachments, which is about a lot of things, but it's a, a bit about consequentialism and morality. And he really struggles with the fact that one reason why it's hard to be a good person is we can't, it's often difficult to predict the results of our actions. And you could, you, could, you know, he, he talks in terms of just random interactions. You know, you're a doctor, you, you save a person, but that person goes on to become a mass murderer. But even everyday interactions like the words you give to people and your reassurances and your kindness and your truths and your lies, you don't really know how it's all going to end up. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. In my book on empathy, I talked a lot about, about you know, doing things to make the world better in the distant future. But I think a reasonable critique is that, that there's so much randomness in a way we should act much more for the immediate present. But of course, that goes against telling the truth, I think. It goes more towards the white lie. So this is a, a larger question of just kind of how how you window the the accrual of consequences for any given act. The consequences, the the line of falling dominoes really never ends, right? So you know, right. what, you know, when what what were the consequences of 
the Cold War, really, yeah. right? Like we've yet to find out, you know, if we if we have a nuclear war 20 years from now or we perfectly ban nuclear weapons and you know rid them from the face of the earth, it's going to be a very different story in in either case and we we've yet to the other shoe has yet to drop. It's a strange thing to say to somebody who's going back through time to kill Hitler, but who knows what would happen? You know, yeah. who, he could come back and the world could be a, a, a you know, smoldering, you know, mess because we then just had World War III like 10 years after or something. Yeah, it's, I guess, I mean, I'm tempted to, I mean, there's kind of like a probability cloud around yep. certain things, which you can never be sure and you and you can never do all the math and there are certainly ways to be surprised but you know for something like that for say, you, you take someone like hitler you know killing hitler seems like a good bet you know it does. in every it does in every like universe i'm aware of well, although there is the question of at what age is it moral to kill him i mean can you can you <laughs> can you kill kill the child well, hitler? <laughs> yeah when does that happen? Like just 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 when you start seeing the the mediocre art, is that is that when you can? <laughs> that's 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 when you do. Just, just strangle him with the with the opera music blaring with your two two impressively that, calloused hands. That that's how I murder people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Paul. It's been uh, this has been a great phone call. It's a pleasure to talk to you after uh, it's been too long. So uh, this has been terrific. Let's Looking do this again the next time. Yeah, excellent. <laughs>